Good afternoon, everyone. How are you all? You can speak. Hi. <laughs> sure. They're going to start a recording, but I'm trying to be a hype person. <laughs> Good evening. I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming at the City Club of Cleveland, and I'm pleased to welcome you to our second film forum at the 43rd Cleveland International Film Festival. We're here to talk about the film Decade of Fire, around the question, how do we repair the damage of structural racism? And here to lead that conversation is Afi Scruggs, a uh, digital storyteller and a former reporter at The Plain Dealer. Okay, thank you very much. And before I start asking questions, I'd like everyone to introduce themselves and I'll start directly to my right, please. Hi, so I'm, I'm Gretchen. Oh, hello. Uh, I'm Gretchen Hildebrand. I'm one of the two directors um, and four producers of Decade of Fire here representing, um, unfortunately, my co-director Vivian Vasquez-Irizarry couldn't be here today, but uh, she sends her best. Hi, everyone. My name is Jennifer Lumpkin. I'm a Civic Engagement Strategy Manager and Organizer with Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. <laughs> Hi, all. Um, I'm Rosie Tai. I'm a professor of urban planning at the Levin College of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State University. This movie is not about me, but it's about me and it's about you because, one, as I watched the movie, so much of it I relived. But secondly, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and as in the Sox South Bronx, my historically black neighborhood is being redeveloped and I'm seeing just everything that I grew up with being destroyed. It's about you because here in Cleveland, as I listened, I heard so many of the words that you all got in the movie being used to describe or have been used to describe declining and deteriorating and abandoned. And by abandoned, I mean neighborhoods that the city has seemed to turn its back on here in Cleveland. So just briefly, if each one of you all would talk about language and how cities and these neighborhoods have become euphemisms for urban destruction and decay and despair. And I'd like to start with you, Gretchen, first. Thanks so much, and thanks for bringing up that. I mean, I think it's a, it was really the inspiration for this film came from um, my two co-producers, Vivian, who I mentioned before, and Julia Steele Allen, who were writing a curriculum for high school students in the Bronx about Bronx history, um, which they were never able to share with students because it was deemed too radical. Um, and part of the inspiration of making this film was really, um, seeing those students, and Vivian's an educator, as you saw in the film, um, and she saw those students every day struggling with the stigma and the shadow of living in a place um, like the South Bronx, and yet these young people, they kind of had no idea <laughs> where that came from, even. It just was what you lived with. And um, I th so I think language for her was about um, flipping the script and giving young people um, pride and inspiration and you know as you saw like despite the the struggle of coming up in from one of those neighborhoods and how difficult that is how much love and pride that young people even today have for the South Bronx and giving them language of how to talk about that and um, how to answer back to 
um, language like, you know, in the 60s, it was like ghetto and slum. And I don't even honestly know the language on the street because, you know, kids have all their, their own language. Um, but it was the same, the same idea. Um, and when we were talking to those young people in that scene at the end of the film, um, you know, they talked at length about how just introducing themselves as somebody from the South Bronx, they already are discounted. They're already seen as not a competitor, not worthy, not smart, not interesting. They're just a stereotype. Um, the instant they've walked in, and this is like a 17-year-old kid who's trying to go to college, trying to see their place in the world. So that's really was the inspiration for making the film, is to give people a different kind of language to talk about places like the South Bronx. Jennifer. I'm glad you asked that question because coming back to Cleveland after being away for about 18 years, I've learned that language is very coded and working in an institution, especially one that is nonprofit, I've learned a lot about urban planning and how language is applied um, and coded very much so. For example, if you live in Cleveland and you say you live on the east side, it means something very different than living on the west side and it's felt. Um, also, words that are coded in language that is coded, like um, the achievement gap, um, that's very racially charged. Um, words that are coded um, that one may use to give a sense of, you know, where they're coming from, but also how disparate and far apart from certain people that we might be. Um, so I think that our language that we've applied um, to the institutionalization of urban planning um, and real estate has almost assisted, assisted us and made us complicit um, in the very things that are causing um, the iniquities that exist, so. Um, that's, this is a great question. I'm, I was literally working today on a, an entire book chapter on racially coded language. Um, so I'm gonna try not to get jargony, but I think I'll add here that it goes both ways. Um, we code things both negatively, you know, terms like ghetto and slum and inner city. I, at this point, even urban, uh, you know, is often coded as a as a negative way. Or especially if you talk about Chicago, which is apparently just a hellscape of destruction and crime. Um, so, but we also have other coded words like middle class values. Right, and those are kind of juxtaposed against something like inner city values. And those are seen as very positive. And we're talking, we talk about them and, and those kind of embody whiteness, right? We have all these coded words, uh, suburb, <laughs> you know, um, that, that embody whiteness and that embodiment is seen as positive as compared to the negative of ghetto or slum and some of this other stuff and those embody blackness, right? And we have, so we have created a society through our actions, through the kind of disinvestment that we've seen in the film, where people everywhere of all races um, will often associate blackness with bad and whiteness with good. And we use this coded language to do that. And when we talk about should we have more affordable housing in the suburbs, for example, or let's put more money into neighborhoods that have suffered from abandonment, you start seeing these coded words come out. Um, and, you know, for example, and we can change it ourselves. You know, we can stop talking about middle class values as being, you know, some sort of thing that people who aren't middle class don't also have. 
Um, you know, as you saw in the film, there was a, a gentleman who talked about how he wanted a safe, he wanted a safe, affordable home so that his kids could walk to school and he could trust that they wouldn't be harmed. I mean, that's middle class values right there. But the fact that we associate it so much with things that are not inner city or ghetto or something else allows us to other um, people and allows us to other communities and set ourselves apart and set ourselves above. Uh, and that's really problematic. Right now, I'm going to get a little Cleveland specific. So, Gretchen, um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to talk to Jennifer and Rose. Rosie or Rose? Either. Okay. Um, as I looked at the film and the, de the demographic change of the South Bronx was outlined, I heard um, Vivian, Vivian, right? I'm really bad with names, y'all, so okay. give me a break. <laughs> talk about how the neighborhood was Jewish, Irish, and Italian, and then black and Puerto Rican. And I immediately thought in Cleveland of neighborhoods like Central, Huff, Glenville especially, and I thought of that university universal trajectory of how you had certain ethnic groups come in and then middle class blacks moved in and then lower, I'm putting this in parentheses, lower class blacks moved in or were moved in. I want to talk about redlining because as I reflected on that watching the movie, I thought about the red line maps from the 30s and 40s, which are online, by the way, and how these different groups were described in the 30s and 40s. So whether Rose or Jennifer wants to talk about, again, the language used in redlining and its effect in policy, if you can do that briefly. <laughs> I know it's a dissertation. <laughs> but whomever would like to um, weigh in with that, and then Gretchen, I'll come back to you. Um, yeah, so uh, we were actually just talking before the movie about how every, every map is a redlining map. Um, if you look at maps that uh, identify disparities in health outcomes, uh, life expectancy, um, educational, I'm not going to call it achievement, I'll call it opportunity. Um, all of these things mirror and reinforce those redlining maps. We cannot look at the issues that we have in terms of racial inequality in Cleveland, and that's equality of opportunity, that's structural racism, that's all of the different things. We cannot look at that and talk about it and engage with in it without acknowledging that these issues that we are confronting today are a, are, are, we need to look at it through a lens of urban renewal and redlining and housing discrimination and, you know, and, and everything from that. It's, it's key that we acknowledge and, and own that history and not say, oh, well, that was in the past. Oh, but that's over. Oh, it's 2019. Because all of that disinvestment, it has affected people generationally. White people that were that left for the suburbs that were able to buy homes, they built on that and they have generational wealth. And those of us who are descendants benefit from that. People who were not able to do that, not able to generation to generate that wealth, are now disadvantaged because of that. And their descendants are disadvantaged because of that. That is today. That is present. That is not history. 
Um, specifically regarding policy and the FHA policies, the wording that was used um, was undesirable. And I know this because we have um, an undesigned the red line exhibit currently at Mount Pleasant now on Kinsman and 137th. Um, and the exhibit since September um, has garnered over 1,500 people who've come from neighborhoods that are not redlined. So a lot of the green and the blue neighborhoods in Cleveland, folks have actually navigated to a redline neighborhood to see this exhibit and learn about the language. Um, I will say that there has to be very focused and targeted policy that directly affects and positively affects black people and Latinx people and other minority people because it was policy that was written explicitly to harm and adversely affect mm -hmm. such people. Our policy that we have today has not reflected that explicit and transparent objective at all. That is one issue. The other issue is that we have um, folks petitioning right now to get policy and legislation that directly affects lead poisoning, which actually corresponds directly with red line communities. And that policy and legislation explicitly looks at affecting and positively affecting black and brown communities. And I actually have an organizer here, um, David from Clash, who has a petition, if anyone would like to sign it, if you live in Cleveland um, before you leave, that will target and specifically look at lifting up um, policy that will help the housing economy and the people who are affected. So unless we have folks that are working to actively work on legislation that uses specific language for these people, such as myself and other black and brown people, um, it will be completely ineffective and complicit in the same harm that we saw in the film. Sure. Um, so I wasn't checking my email. Uh, I was looking for a quote. Um, <laughs> from notes, and so this comes from a, a book called um, uh, da, 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 On Restrictive Covenants, right, and talking about deed restrictions. And what this says, and I think that this is key, quote, in essence, this linking of place, race, and behavior worked to racialize urban space, thereby focusing public attention on the behaviors of blacks as the cause of urban problems and, in effect, justifying their segregation from the white population. And, oh, can I add one thing? Sure. I'm sorry. Oh, just bringing it back to language, one of the things that I feel like we really um, had to grapple with this in this film is how many people want to talk about individual uh, mindsets, individual behaviors of either, you know, of, of white people, black people, who, you know, all the people who lived in the Bronx, when in the fact, in, in fact, all those racialized ideas came after the policies. You have the policies which are intended to, it's about resources, bringing resources to, to certain neighborhoods and communities and keeping them out of others, and that policy needs to be justified in how the language and mm -hmm. the ideas and the focus on behavior especially, especially um, is, is kind of like what, what comes after that. Um, although that um, idea of individual either racist ideas or behaviors or whatever is how we generally seem to think about these issues mm -hmm. rather than the structures and policies happening behind the scenes. Let me interrupt just for a minute. How much time do we have left? Okay, I had one more question, but I, I'm gonna skip it. Um, if there are people who would like to ask any of the panelists questions, I think now would be the time to do it. Um, and there's someone coming up with a microphone to your front and to your back. So all you have to do is raise your hand and then you can 
you can ask whomever, whatever. Thank you very much. Uh, where can we donate and support? Uh, well, uh, for the film, <laughs> there's a lot to donate to and support, I'm sure, in Cleveland. Um, for the film, we actually do have an engagement campaign to bring this film to over 30 communities across the country in the next year, um, connecting with housing justice groups specifically. So if you wanna donate and support that campaign, um, that would be immensely helpful and you can do it on our website, decadeoffire.com. But I think there's probably really great ways to donate and support locally too. You can follow at Third Space Cleveland. You can also follow at Cleveland Votes. You can also talk to David and sign the petition that Clash has created to get on the ballot November 2019. And you can also follow Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. And I'll um, chime in and uh, just add that you can also support the Fair Housing Center for Rights and Research here in Cleveland, as well as Legal Aid. Both of these organizations um, deal directly with evictions, with housing discrimination, and with fair housing uh, goals and, um, and outcomes. So look at them as well. Hello. Um, first of all, I want to commend um, the women female um, filmmakers. Uh, I'm act actually, I was born in Cleveland, East Cleveland. Um, I wasn't raised here, but I've been recently coming, been coming back to get to know my roots. And um, it's interesting how it's brought me full circle, and I do want to definitely get involved with the um, urban planning. Um, but yeah, I don't even, I, I'm just, um, I've done a lot of community work in the Bronx. Um, I'm a teaching artist for the Caribbean Cultural Center African Diaspora yeah. Institute. Um, I'm here really only for this film festival. Mm -hmm. um, and also to do you know other cultural things, but um, anyways, I'm kind of rambling, and I really don't have a question or anything <laughs> other than, um, are you going to be showing this in New York? Uh, yeah, we we um, let's see, we pr premiered the film in New York in a film festival, and then we in over the last two months we've done about a dozen community screenings oh, okay, awesome. with um, groups like Casa, who's the group that is also part of the film. Um, and other, Banana Kelly is still around. They're actually a really vibrant grassroots um, tenant-led organization. And then um, there's Catholic Migration Services, there's Uprose, um, there's actually, and uh, Make the Road, there's a lot of organizations working on the, you know, there's so many issues that connect with this film um, that are still, you know, really rele relevant today. Mm -hmm. So we, we have screened it a lot. We're kind of at the end of our, um, community screenings in New York, but we are gonna have a theatrical run in May. And um, if you go to our I'll Facebook page, uh, which is- Spread the word. Please do, and yeah, share, and, and you know, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, yeah. you, are you on Instagram? Yep, okay. Instagram too, yep. Decade of Fire One on Instagram. And while you're Thank here, you. visit the Undesigned the Red Line exhibit at Mount Pleasant now. Yeah. It's specific to Cleveland. Hello, um, thank you for your film. I was wondering when you had the community groups who were going in and doing all that hard labor, wonderful labor, inspirational labor to clean up those buildings, they were kind of almost also at risk of once they cleaned them up, of possibly even being booted out of them. And so I kind of wondered, did they pay rent once people started to move in? Did landlords kind of take those buildings over? How did that play out? Well. Um, so Harry DiRienzo, who was in the film, he was the white guy who was organ like one of the founders of Banana Kelly. 
um, he always says about that, that, you know, when Banana Kelly got started, they were like, oh, we have so much power. We're doing such amazing things because they would go in, take over these buildings and the landlords, he, he was like, people would call us and be mad, but nobody showed up to do anything about it because nobody cared. Nobody was in the Bronx. Like the city wasn't there. Landlords had left. So um, they could kind of complain about it all they wanted. But what he said happened after the housing, you know, like the housing actually was renovated by Banana Kelly and the city and a number of other groups is that, you know, developer, like the land has value. And once the power, like they were working in a vacuum of power. And once power arrived back, that's when the real struggle and, um, you know, kind of like hard times that continue into the present um, really, really like set in. And um, for instance, Robert Foster, who was in the film and is part of Banana Kelly, they lived in that building. He passed it on to his daughter. Um, the tenants who renovated it have lived there for the last 40 years, but they never got a certificate of occupancy from the city. So that meant they could never get a loan to fix the windows that they put in as part of their sweat equity thing. So it it is a good example of how when you watch this film, we are not saying like people can just do it for themselves and they don't need government. They can just do it. Um, you know, people power is amazing, but without policy changes, institutional support, and government action, um, you know, people people are really get stuck, <laughs> you know, especially when those things, as they are today, are actually still working against you. Policy in the past was racist. <laughs> policy today still continues to be, and I think that's another part of what's happening in New York and all cities is mm -hmm. to try and lift that veil. Yeah, I'll uh, jump on that as well. Um, it was briefly mentioned in the film, but uh, this also spurred the establishment of uh, the New York City Housing Co-op Program. Um, there is a tremendous amount of cooperative housing, much of it w in the Bronx, um, much of it in these areas that were devastated by fire. Um, it's seen as a model, but because of this unique power vacuum that existed and, and how it was able to kind of come about, we haven't seen a lot of similar um, approaches in other places. But, you know, if, if you want to secure um, affordable housing in core neighborhoods and prevent displacement, you need to use these innovative mechanisms for, of ownership. And, that, and that's talking about having um, land trusts, land banks, community land trusts, um, co these co-ops. If you look at the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative and what they did in Boston, these are these shared ownership models of housing which disaggregate and decouple the profit motive from the housing agenda. Right, and it's all, so I mean, much of what we see here, much of what caused this entire film was people profiting on the exploitation of the poor. And if you read uh, Evicted by Matthew Desmond, you will see that, that this continues and it is ongoing. And so at some point there needs to be a reckoning um, regarding how we look at housing, whether housing is a right or should be a right, and then what we're gonna do about it because leaving it to the market, this is what happens. Are there any other questions? Thank you, that was a really wonderful film. Congratulations, I'm glad it's gonna be able to be seen all over. I'm actu I actually live in Akron, Ohio, 30 miles south of here. And um, you know, if two things, when you talk about the coded words, now, you know, what can we say? We can say even urban, which is fairly <laughs> innocent sounding, as you say, has become coded. 
So the language itself is, of course, a problem. And uh, in a way, you just answered my question because we can look back now and recognize these things that at the time and in the movie, they say this just, you know, they just happened. Of course, they didn't just happen. But today, identifying, you know, like, well, what is happening today that we're not seeing that's going to be causing, you know, that we need to get a hold of? But in a, you, you did just describe that, and I think that the for those of us in places that are smaller but with similar problems, looking to the models of things that work, because, you know, still anything can be sort of corrupted. Land banks can be corrupted, you know, to a certain extent. They can be working. But anyway, but, but, but so... Thank you for that information. Um, you know, but you know, changing these, looking at the models that are actually working in places to change those policies. I'll just say this really quickly. I think that the shame in policy right now is that policy makes it very easily, if you are white, to be unintentionally racist, to just kind of go along and believe that if you just want to really go to a good school district, you'll move to a certain place. And the difference is, you have intent and impact. And when you have good intentions, you also have to think of the impact that your intentions are going to have on yourself and others, right? So that's, it's not really about a model. It's about looking at the long-term effects of your family's history and how that's possibly been complicit with racism and segregation, and then the intent and the impact of your current actions in the long term. And I think that that's a really important part to understand that policy right now makes it exceptionally simple and easy to just kind of walk in the way of racism without realizing it. Yeah, and that's largely a result of really great strides that were made at the policy level in terms of the Fair Housing Act, the Civil Rights Act. When that happened, all of a sudden, you know, discrimination's illegal, okay. That doesn't mean that everybody has equal access to, of opportunity anymore, right? That doesn't mean that you can't, there was there was no reckoning. There were no reparations. There was no um, there was no fixing the damage that had been done. It was just said, okay, congratulations, you're on an even playing field now with your zero um, equity in your home that your parents were never able to afford with with the, the colleges that you were not allowed to go into. And we've and we so we've established this this colorblind policy arena, which I think is what you were referring to, mm -hmm. where we really can't talk about race because we said, well, you can't talk about race in policy because, and it was intended to say we don't want to discriminate. But what it's effectively done is also not allowed us to do to have policies that are proactively and retroactively fixing the problems that happened before that Housing Act. And we're still dealing with things, you know, the foreclosure crisis, the subprime lending, we, you know, there are still discriminatory racist policies, you know, in the private sector and in government that still exist, but we still haven't even fixed what happened before the Fair Housing Act. And I think that that is what allows white people to say, what? You know, all I did was choose a neighborhood that I thought was safe and good for my kids and my schools and you know, used the equity that I had in my 401k to buy my home. And that's fine. You know, nobody's asking anybody to apologize for that or to be blamed for that, but just to acknowledge the fact that that is privilege, right? And, and that not everybody has that privilege and to look at ways that we individually and as society can undo some of that. And sometimes that means sharing power, not talking over people if you're white. <laughs> That always <laughs> means sharing power, yeah. always. <laughs>
<laughs> let me and resources. And I mean, resources. I, I think one just to piggyback on what you're saying. Sorry, that's okay. Is to say that um, since we started making this film, every community, like when we started, we we're like, oh yeah, we'll bring it to like gentrification hotspots across the country. That is now every city in this country. In the last ten, we took we took ten years to make this film. That was that's the backstory. So uh, you know, and that was in the works. And especially with the foreclosure crisis, you know that really accelerated. But where we are today is that there's actually housing crisis in low-income communities, in middle-class communities, in homeless communities. I mean, every community is experiencing a housing crisis in this country, and it's actually not even being discussed as an issue on maybe at a state or, or a local level, but not at a federal level. And it's, I think it's time for us as a society to really grapple with the fact that without reparations, without the ways that the market has been <laughs> co-opted by the powers that be, whether they're governmental or corporate, um, or kind of like hedge funds at this point, mm -hmm. um, without grappling and confronting that as everybody's problem, that we're, we're, you know, we're all gonna be in trouble. Like housing is not affordable for most people, but especially if you're under, you know, 30, <laughs> you know. I wanna less. interrupt you because there's one gentleman who's been waiting for a question and I wanna make sure he gets his question in. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, very, very amazing film, Gretchen. Uh, I work with an organization, a foundation that's based in Manhattan, actually. Uh, one of the things we do is we empower young people to connect with uh, elderly people with dementia and Alzheimer's, a uh, very underserved population, in order to try to crea create dementia and age-friendly communities. Uh, if that's something that you might inter be interested in exploring, uh, we have a program already in New York City that we've done, and uh, the Bronx would be a great place to, sure. to do that. Okay, well, let's talk after the screening. Yeah. I think there's a question in the back. Okay. <laughs> uh, you touched upon this a little bit with mentioning gentrification and also when, when you mentioned the, the creative community ownership concept. But my question is about sort of the tail end of the movie where you have a place that was basically given up by everybody except for these disenfranchised groups. And these disenfranchised groups with all the hurdles that have been put up against them, they still manage to come up with these very vibrant communities, these wonderful places. And then it's decided somewhat later on, and this goes on with the discussion about language, all of a sudden these places are now considered desirable. And these groups that have maintained this, what's great about these places are now pushed out by these groups that had written them off in the decades before. Mm -hmm. And if those communities don't have the type of creative community ownership already in place, how do you combat that? Because, I mean, you've got these places, I mean, like I think like there's places in like in, like in LA that had unbelievably vibrant cultural communities, these were Latin communities, that were just the coolest places. And then all of a sudden, all these other groups that had fled with white flight and stuff, now they think it's cool. And the people that <laughs> kept it cool, they're gone. They're kicked out. Yeah. Let me how interrupt. Do you, how do you combat that? You have just articulated my critique with the Richard Florida model. Oh, God, don't <laughs> even start. <laughs> okay, ladies, whomever wants. 
<laughs> Whoever wants to answer that, but I had to interject. That. Well, so yeah, absolutely. But um, so, so uh, yeah, as soon as he said creative, and you were ta talking about home ownership, but as soon as he said creative, I started being like, please don't bring up the creative class. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, so this is one thing. Again, we were talking about before the film is you know people tend to. Um, dismiss the idea of gentrification and displacement in Cleveland because it's so affordable, um, you know, compared to say your San Francisco or your, or your uh, Brooklyn or other places that where, where we see films like this, right? Th films about gentrification. But um, if you look at, for example, the um, Puerto Rican community here in Cleveland and how they've been displaced from uh, different neighborhoods in the West Side and are now kind of feeling under threat in the Clark Fulton neighborhood, um, this is happening in Cleveland. I live in Ohio City. I'm a gentrifier. Mm -hmm. I did that. Um, you know, I didn't know because I came <laughs> from out of town, but it happened. <laughs> but like, so like you said, how do you have these social ownership models in place? How do you provide, how do you give power to these communities? And in a lot of ways, it means taking power from other people, right? Let's stop with the opportunity corridors and the opportunity zones and the blockchain and all of these policies that are essentially enabling outsiders and white people to profit yet again off of poverty and off of the poor and at best displace folks from these neighborhoods. So we, we and the time to do that is now. The time to do that is before gentrification sets in. I'll just say, I think what you're describing to me is a lack of diversity when it comes to authority and power. If you look at developers, majority of de developers are not Latinx, they're not black, they are not of other cultures, they, are, they aren't women, right? So you don't have a lot of variance there. Um, so when people describe gentrification, I almost think of it as like a, a whitewashing and it doesn't have the same spirit, right? It doesn't have the same soul and the creativity that you're describing because those people don't have the authority or power to be a developer, right? You don't have a lot of those folks doing that. So I think that, again, a power shift has to happen in order to bring equity and lift folks who are of this, the spirit that you're speaking of so that they can be in more control, more um, power figures, and have more um, money to become developers. And essentially, you won't have this sort of whitewashing that you're describing. I'm going to give Gretchen the last word, oh. and then, and Sorry. because I am a journalist, I'm very deadline driven. Uh, this will be our last comment. If you wish to speak to any of the filmmakers or the panelists, I'm sure you, that you can catch them outside um, the theater or this theater. But thank you all, before I turn it over to Gretchen, thank you all for your attention and thank you for attending CIFF 43. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, to answer your question, I also feel like a group like CASA in the Bronx, um, you know, in the face of the city's plan to rezone, which means allowing developers to build up on top of buildings that already are there. And, it, you know, when that, when even the prospect of that, landlords have become evicting and harassing tenants to get them to leave because they foresee, oh, I'm going to be able to build on top of this place and charge market rent. And, you know, um, that is the city's plan for getting housing built for poor people. That's their plan. It's a terrible plan. And it's, they did not expect the community to resist mm -hmm. or to disagree with this because they're used to going into communities that have been disinvested in for years 
and just throw them throw them crumbs whatever whatever you give them they're going to just take it and um, that community stood and fought and one thing that they did win was the right to counsel so now in New York City and this is this was a casa thing that they made happen as part of this rezoning fight if you get evicted or have any housing action against you you have now have the right to a lawyer provided by the city in housing court which did not exist before so that's a model that's being replicated and they came up with their own plan um, for what the community needed that was generated from the community and they would show up to planning hearings and saying why are we looking at your plan why don't you read our plan and of course the planning committee <laughs> doesn't care they don't want to care but they had the people power to like kind of be a part of the conversation so I think they you know looking at places and you mentioned LA there's um, some really amazing organizing happening in LA um, it, it takes everybody being involved and caring about their neighborhood and showing up to all the meetings and everything but it's happening it is out there don't believe that this is the only system that's possible I guess is my last word okay and thank you all very much and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Mm -hmm.